today on Ag News Daily. Oftentimes they have that one constraint and they, they go and they, they Google, you know, other farms that are doing this elsewhere and they, they get really excited, but then they don't know how to get from that, um, that initial, I say constraint, it's also an opportunity, right? Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Happy Tech Tuesday here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. Delaney Howell joined today by Ashton Carr. Ashton, what do you know today? Well, I read some numbers earlier, and I am hearing that 8% of U.S. corn and 6% of soybeans are now harvested. I saw that as well. Yeah, it's hard to believe that here we are, you know, end of September, and we're already seeing uh, this much of our corn harvest done. But I guess... When you look at the average pace, we're actually two percentage points behind the average pace, which is usually 10% for this time of year. So, you know, that's despite corn development continuing to run ahead of time, you know, which is why I figured we'd be seeing maybe bigger numbers now. But here we sit. And I guess to add to that a little bit, too, you know, we should note that your home state, Ashton of Texas. Texas is really the leader right now as far as corn harvesting goes, and they're at 69% harvested already, and most Midwestern states are just getting started. Well, I take a little bit of pride in that, even though I don't even think I know a corn farmer (laughs) down here in Texas on the top of my head. But I'm really excited because I'm starting to see some, some green in the fields when it comes to the cotton crop, and so I always love when they start to harvest cotton down here, which will of course happen closer to November and the later part of the year. But I'm definitely excited. I've been seeing, of course, a lot of cab photos on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. But yeah, be sure to share those with us at Ag News Daily. Yeah, maybe we could do some sort of like little uh, harvest picture contest or something. We'll have to dream up an idea there, Ashton. But Yeah, I'm excited to see folks getting out in the field. This is honestly my favorite time of year. The weather is changing. Folks are getting out there and harvesting. And, you know, this year, at least, we finally have something to be uh, happy or thankful about when it comes to commodity prices. And of course, as we've talked about with analysts, and uh, I've shared a little bit here, a lot of the recent price action we've seen has been demand driven. Well, we got some new demand news earlier today with the USDA sharing their fresh export sales numbers. We saw about 140,000 metric tons of corn for delivery to China. We also saw 320,000 metric tons of corn for delivery to unknown destinations, which could largely be speculated as Chinese buying yet again. And on the soybean side of things, we saw 266,000 metric tons of soybeans for delivery to China, as well as an additional 264,000 metric tons of soybeans for delivery to, again, unknown destinations. So we are continuing to see China really come in here and keep up with the... um, keep up with the purchases. And, you know, we didn't finish positive on the day, but we definitely had, I guess, more of a recovery day today compared to where we were yesterday. So we finished lower, but, you know, compared to yesterday's losses, uh, definitely not as big as what they could have been. Definitely a little bit of positivity there, Delaney, but I want to take things again to harvest, but this time talking about grape harvest in Spain's Bosque County, not county, country. Um, 
Online industry workers in Spain's Rioja producing region of Alava must undergo a coronavirus test before they start work to prevent COVID-19 outbreaks, putting the grape harvest at risk. And I thought this was very interesting because we have seen a variety of countries, how they are handling immigrant work. And so I thought this was very interesting. And to go into a little bit of further detail, I thought this was a little bit funny, but grape pickers have dubbed the 2020 grape harvest the harvest of the masks. And so I thought that was pretty clever, but they will be given their own equipment, including baskets and scissors, which cannot be exchanged to avoid infections. And authorities in the Basque country have made it compulsory for wine estates to provide a list of workers. And then the health department then will carry out the coronavirus tests. So I thought this was very proactive and one good way of handling immigrant. It really doesn't say whether or not it's immigrant work. From what I understand, it's not immigrant work, but it's still harvest work. And so being you know, in a close proximity to to other workers, it's definitely a risk spreading COVID-19. So I thought it was very proactive. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I don't think I've ever shared this on the podcast. Maybe I have. It's it's not coming to mind if I have, but I actually worked at a winery and vineyard uh, in high school throughout into college. And so I definitely understand what they're talking about for, I mean, to put it in perspective, when you're harvesting grapes, you, especially if you're doing it by hand, you're literally going into the vine, clipping out grapes, and you might be working on the same vine with somebody else. And, you know, usually those vines are not six feet apart. I mean, I think usually they were about two to three feet apart. So you weren't socially distancing by any means. So interesting little piece of news for today, Ashton. Absolutely. Yeah, I tell you what, I, I'm actually I'm going to take it back to chatting China here because I also saw this come up on the newswire today and I thought this was very interesting and again can lead to or point to continued Chinese demand. We saw some new estimates said that China has nearly exhausted its reserves of frozen pork and that they are going to be in a shortfall here very, very shortly. And, you know, they're they're notating that a lot of this is obviously because of African swine fever. That was, you know, two years ago, which is crazy to think. But they're now finally chewing through literally that frozen pork reserve that they have and are going to have to be coming to the buying table. They estimate that reserves have fell by about 452,000 tons between September of 2019 and August of this year, and that China has less than 100,000 tons of pork remaining in their reserves at this time, which, to put in perspective, is usually about two to three months' worth of supplies. So they actually issued a, you know, as far as exports go, they issued a purchase of about 7,700 tons of frozen beef and mutton. Uh, four state reserves on September 24th. And we will begin to see if they do come to the buying table, but it is largely speculated that China is going to be needing to buy pork and probably beef and be able to replenish those, uh, those reserves they have. But, you know, as Ashton, you've mentioned, they're not going to be turning to Germany to get that frozen pork because of the African swine fever uh, cases that have developed there. You know, I'm glad you brought that up, Delaney, because I was going to ask where they would be getting this pork because, you know, I don't know too much on imports or exports. But 
with them being closed off from receiving exports from Germany because of that African swine fever outbreak, do you know or expect them to look to a certain country when they're looking to replenish those resources? Well, I'm glad you asked that. I mean, definitely the United States is uh, top of mind when it comes to that. You know, Brazil also does a little bit of pork production and exports to China, um, but they're definitely more of a beef exporter to China. So, yeah, I'm thinking that uh, China's definitely got some reason to come to the buying table here at the United States. Well, I'm certainly hoping so and hoping that means good news to pork producers. And we'll definitely be keeping an eye out on how that affects the markets. But I do have just one more piece of news today. And it's coming from Debbie Stabnow, who is the ranking member of the Senate Ag Committee. And she is from Michigan, of course. But I thought this was very interesting, what she had to say about Commodity Credit Corporation funds. And Stebnow says that there's no reason USDA should run out of commodity credit corporation funds with October Farm Bill program payments and COVID-19 assistance. And she was quoted as saying, from all of the experts giving me information, that's actually not accurate. What we have is a fight about whether there should be immediate additional resources without any accountability. And she also said that each fiscal year, CCC funds are renewed for up to $30 billion in borrowing authority in mid-November, and USDA should be able to manage what's due to farmers in October, as well as COVID-19 payments. And additionally, she added, if there was a framework as to why USDA needs an early refill over the next 10 weeks, it would be a different situation, but clearly the usage of the money has become a, quote, political slush fund ahead of the elections. Yeah, I'm glad you brought this story up uh, because I did not remember to address it yesterday during the podcast, but you are absolutely right. So just to add a little more color to the story, you know, they have been we've been seeing our folks out in Washington, D.C., kind of feuding over this CCC or the Commodity Credit Corporation. That's the money that we saw the market facilitation payment funds come out of. Um, It's been largely used to support farmers during all of these different issues that we've had with trade disputes and market issues. And so we saw, you know, especially on the Republican side of things, they were pushing to add more money to this fund. And Democrats have apparently refused to allow, as you mentioned there, Debbie Stabenow was uh, largely leading this up, have refused to allow any more replenishing of this CCC fund. And so we saw or we're seeing currently threats that a stopgap spending bill Um, will not be passed. So they're, of course, trying to put together a fiscal budget for next year. So that's been threatened to be put on hold until we see something happen here with this CCC fund. Uh, But, you know, it sounds just like typical Washington having partisan views and not being able to get stuff done. So we'll continue to watch this you know, if I had to speculate, I would say we probably won't see the CCC fund get replenished here before that money is supposed to go back into it. I, I, I guess I don't understand the reasoning either for why they think that more money needs to get put into that fund unless they're planning on some sort of additional, you know, market facilitation type of payment. So... 
Yeah, and maybe this is something that we can further discuss later this week. We are having uh, FSA Administrator Richard Fordyce come on to talk about CFAT too. So maybe this is just, you know, a further conversation that we need to have then, but definitely going to be keeping my eyes and ears out for what's coming next. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. That will be a good conversation or a good question to ask Administrator Fordyce Ashton. So let's make sure we jot that one down. But I tell you what, I am all out of news for today. Do you have anything else our listeners should be aware of? Not anything other than the markets, which I think I'm ready to hop into. I am as well, because we definitely had a little bit of a turnaround today compared to where we saw things closing yesterday. We still saw a lot of red on the screen, but, you know, just we did see for a, a slight time corn and soybeans both traded positive, but finished lower on the day. The December corn contract lost just a half a cent to close at 369 and a quarter, while the March down a half a cent as well to close at 378 and three quarters. In the soybean pits, the November contract losing two and three quarters cents today to close at 1019 and three quarters, while the January shedding three pennies to close at 1024 and a half. In the Chicago wheat pits, the December contract up three and a quarter cent to close at 5.58, while the March up two and three quarters cent to close at 5.65 and three quarters. In the livestock pits, the weakness continues as the October live cattle contract shed 22 and a half cents to close at 106.47 and a half. The December losing 42 and a half cents to close at 110.17 and a half. In the feeder cattle pits, the October contract losing a dollar sixty-two today to close at one forty sixty-two and a half, while the November shed a dollar fifty-five to close at one forty-one seventeen and a half. In the lean hog pits, green across the screen is the October contract added two seventy-two to close at sixty-eight thirty-two. The December adding two dollars fifty-five cents to end the day at sixty-four ten. And rounding out our markets with the class three dairy milk futures, the October contract losing a dollar thirty today to close at eighteen thirty-five. The November down eighty-two cents to close at eighteen sixteen. Without further ado, Ashton, why don't you tell us who we're talking to for today's interview? Well, for today's hashtag Tech Tuesday segment, we are talking to Ricky Stevens from Agritecture. Today on the podcast, we have Ricky Stevens, who is the Director of the Digital Strategy for Agritecture. Ricky, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Hi, Ashton. Thanks for having me. So before we get started, I just want to take a deeper look at what Agritecture is because you guys are doing some pretty cool stuff. So at, at its core, what is Agritecture? Yeah, at its core, uh, well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what we've been, and um, we're definitely going through a bit of a transition period right now. So um, uh, maybe I'll try out the new pitch on you as well, but. Agritecture has been a leading urban agriculture consulting firm for the last six years. Uh, we were started in 2014 by Henry Gordon Smith, our, our founder and CEO. And, um, and he actually started a blog before that, which was agritecture.com, where he was really just tracking the commercial urban agriculture industry and interviewing thought leaders and operators. Um, and then based on the popularity of that blog that he started back in 2011, he started getting inquiries and requests um, and so that eventually led to the consulting business. Um, and this has been a big year of transition for us, you know, partly obviously because of COVID, everyone is, is having to have an adaptation strategy to their status quo, but um, partly based on, on some things we were already doing, um, including a lot of the strategies that I oversee on the digital front. And so 
you know, the way we talk about ourselves today is that um, we're, we're really becoming more of a data and technology company along with the consulting services that we offer. Um, so yeah, I'll pause there. So you said something very interesting, and this is really why I wanted to reach out to you guys is that you're working with urban agriculture. And at Ag News Daily, we talk to a lot of farmers and producers in and around the Corn Belt area. So that's more traditional farming. So for our listeners who might not really be too familiar with urban agriculture, why don't you give us just a little bit of a definition of that and maybe what types of farms you guys are working with? Yeah, absolutely. And and I always start when when people that are less familiar with that term, I always start by saying, you know, it's it's an interesting phrase because um, urban agriculture seems to be the the phrase that's gotten the most um, that's gained the most popularity. Um, and so, you know, when you look at again, I'm I'm a marketer, um, so when you look at sort of Google search history and things like that, um, in the in the general um, you know, either indoor agriculture, controlled environments, uh, urban agriculture um, space, what you see is, yeah, urban agriculture and vertical farming are the two terms that are really rising in popularity. Um, but there's there's different definitions. So we have a, fa- a fairly broad definition of urban agriculture. You know, to us, it's really about growing a product that you're selling to your local community um, or, or local stakeholders in general. So that could be, um, you know, direct to consumer model, but it could also be to restaurants or local or regional food hubs. Um, and so that tends to be more, you know, specialty crops. Um, and then our area of expertise at agritecture, um, or maybe one of our unique areas of expertise is specifically around controlled environments. Um, so when you kind of combine those two, you tend to get, you know, some of these urban farms, these higher tech urban farms um, that we're seeing making headlines around the world. So either, you know, like a rooftop greenhouse farm, such as Gotham Greens is a company that's been growing quite quickly around the country, um, or an indoor vertical farm, such as, you know, Aero Farms, Bowery Farms, Plenty. Those are some of the big companies that have raised a lot of money in this space. Um, Now, we tend to work with the companies that are not VC backed, um, so the companies that haven't necessarily raised $100 million, we're working more with entrepreneurs who are trying to create sustainable businesses for themselves and their families. Um, so that could be a you know, third generation farmer um, who's just looking to transition away from uh, the commodity world or, or just transition their, their farming business in general. Maybe they took it over from their their parents and didn't think that they'd ever get into it. Um, you know, especially now in COVID times, we're seeing a lot of people, you know, moving home and getting into the, to, um, businesses or projects that they never necessarily thought they would, or people are, um, you know, inheriting land and, and trying to figure out what to do productively with that. So, um, yeah, suffice it to say, there's, there's a lot of different definitions there, but, um, typically what we see is it's people that are looking for new ways of growing, um, fresh, nutritious, um, generally greens and vegetables and trying to sell to their local markets. Gotcha. And you pointed out something very interesting to me is you you gave the example of a third generation farmer. And I think that's one thing that in traditional agriculture that we've been seeing is the decrease of young farmers and the age of farmers really starting to increase and 
you know, you're seeing more of older farmers who are starting to get less and less able. It's on our minds as well. It's um, we we've worked with. Um, so let me just give you a, a quick um, look at, at what our you know who we work with um, and and what our client world looks like. So we typically work about two thirds of our clients are emerging entrepreneurs, um, business owners who are trying to get you know these types of operations off the ground. Maybe they're trying to build a a new greenhouse on their property, or maybe it's a um, you know former software engineer or someone in finance or tech that's that's in a city and just looking to do something different. Oftentimes, they're looking to do something that has kind of a triple bottom line effect. Um, and so, naturally, you know, urban agriculture, agriculture in general, food in general, um, checks a lot of those boxes. Um, but they're looking to do something that's maybe less uh, resource intensive. Um, you know, a lot of our entrepreneurs want to bring in circular economy principles. They might want to bring in um, principles of uh, job growth or of um, uh, community redevelopment, um, neighborhood redevelopment, um, things like that. So that those are all things that are really important uh, to the entrepreneurs we work with. And then about a third of our clients are just other important stakeholders within the uh, the, the food and agriculture web. So that could be, um, like large buyers who are looking five years down the road and seeing the growth, the rise in, in local food and trying to figure out, you know, do they need to vertically integrate? Um, should they have some of their own farms that are within, you know, 15 miles of, um, some of their large supermarkets or distribution centers? Um, Sometimes it's it's research institutes, universities that are trying to figure out from a programming standpoint, how can they teach the next generation of kind of like higher tech um, ag business owners? Um, and so what I was going to bring up to your point of, of, you know, farmers aging out and it being really hard to attract this new generation to agriculture. Um, we've been working closely with Cornell University um, on, a, on a grant, um, all related to workforce development, really, and trying to figure out. You know, we took a, it was a three-year grant. So we looked at a bunch of different things, but um, we spent a lot of time with, with young farm managers of these controlled environment farms and trying to figure out um, what are the skills that are really, really important for a good farm manager to have, because there's, there's very little research on that. And there, there is this assumption oftentimes in the, the indoor farming world that it's all about the technology and you can, you know, program the farm to operate um, 100% effectively. And that's definitely not true. Technology can be a great aid, but everybody you talk to in this space will tell you that ultimately you need somebody that understands plants and how they grow and how to identify, you know, a pest out, potential pest outbreak or a disease outbreak early on. And um, so those things are still really, really important. Absolutely. And, and you make some terrific points there, but I want to go ahead and move the conversation to your services. So you have your consulting services and you have mentioned that you're adding more data and analysis and some things in between. So why don't you give us just a quick look about the services that you guys are providing? Yeah. So on the consulting side, it's really anything um, related to the planning phase of, a, of generally a commercial urban or indoor farm. Um, so that can be, you know, initial concept development. <clears throat> so an example could be, you know, somebody comes to us with, you know, typically they have some sort of constraint. Again, it's, it's generally tied to like a land or building that they have access to. Um, it could be, you know, they have, uh, they've identified a really unique market opportunity because they have relationships with 
uh, restaurants or a food hub or something like that. <clears throat> and they found that, you know, there's a particular um, crop or set of herbs that, that people are looking for. And then, you know, typically they're being flown in from halfway around the world, right? So there's chefs that are kind of yearning for um, you know, a more local or fresh ingredient. They're not able to get it. Um, oftentimes they have that one constraint and they, they go and they, they Google, you know, other farms that are doing this elsewhere and they, they get really excited, but then they don't know how to get from that, um, that initial, I say constraint, it's also an opportunity, right? That initial opportunity of, wow, well, I have a building and I have a relationship, but how do I actually start this farm? How do I know how to evaluate these different technologies or, um, equipment solutions that are coming out there? How do I know the right farm manager to hire? How do I even know what skills, um, you know, are important? Um, how do I know how much money I need to raise and, and what the payback period might look like? Um, and what types of investors are interested in this or what types of, 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 uh, lenders can I go to for this? So that's all of those questions is what our consulting services, um, aim to answer. So we can do everything from that initial concept development all the way through to, you know, economic analysis, um, farm designs, equipment selection, market research, and really get them to a really strong business plan, um, that they can feel confident, you know, presenting in front of a, a lender or an investor, um, or oftentimes, if they do have money of their own, you know, uh, basically putting that to work. Um, so that's on the consulting side. And then, yeah, when I when I talked about our data and technology that we're building out, um, you know, the the realization that we had about a year ago, or maybe two years ago, even, and this was really our our founder Henry had was um, we'd amassed a pretty large online following. We have over a hundred thousand followers across social media and our email newsletter. And when we look at, you know, we love the the clients that we work with and the projects that we do, but we were um, working with less than 0.1% of that total online following, just in terms of the number of clients that we work with each year. And so, um, you know, we have a pot with this blog and we have social media content that we put out there, but we really wanted to figure out how do we, how do we help people that won't be able to spend, you know, tens of thousands of dollars on a, on, you know, US-based consultants, especially because our audience has grown very global in the last few years. Um, so how do we how do we help the urban farmer in the Philippines or in India, where we've seen huge growth in following um, in the last couple of years in particular, um, or Brazil or Thailand or South Africa? Um, you know, how do we help them just understand some of the opportunities that exist in their local market? How do we help them understand what hydroponics is all about or what um you know, what some of this emerging greenhouse technology looks like and what some of the, the ROI or payback period might look like, um, if they were to go down, um, that route of exploring a, a potential project in that space. So we built out, um, and, and launched earlier this year, something called Agritecture Designer, which is, uh, the world's first digital platform for planning urban farms. So you can get all of those answers, um, through a tool that we've created that basically asks you a number of questions. There's kind of an input page. You make some selections on the type of farm you, you look, you, you're thinking about modeling out or building and we'll give you cost estimates, revenue, potential, um, payback period, all of those key numbers that you would need to know. Um, and then it comes along with a series of, of, um, lessons related to commercial urban farming. Um, which came out of a course that we taught in person for a number of years at our office in New York. So 
um, sort of proven educational lessons that we know can really help people who come in um, kind of at that um, that square one really help to accelerate the the knowledge and um, and the questions that they want to find answers to. Well, Ricky, I just have one more question before I let you go. You mentioned sure. that you have a big following on social media. And so if our listeners want to go ahead and follow you guys as well, where can they find you at? Yeah, it's at Agritecture. Um, and that's pretty much every social media account. And our website is www.agritecture.com. Um, and so there you can sign up for our newsletter. You can check out the Agritecture Designer platform. We also have a series um, of a, a bunch of different videos with a lot of these urban farming entrepreneurs. So if you don't want to take my word for it and you want to listen to a bunch of other thought leaders in the space, you can check out our di- digital conference series that we did earlier this year. Um, and then read our blog. We always are coming out with new content. Um, last week, we spotlighted Urban Crop Solutions. That's a big player in the space, uh, the new vertical farming system that they just launched. Um, so there's there's always new new and exciting news that we're tracking and updating or following on. Absolutely. Well, Ricky, thank you so much again for coming on the podcast. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me, Ashton. Thanks again to Ricky for coming on. And, you know, after that interview, we spoke a little bit more about regenerative agriculture, which we talked a little bit about last week with the Kiss the Ground interview. And it's really just interesting. You know, there's so many different aspects of agriculture and traditional agriculture and urban agriculture are so different. So being able to have that conversation with him and talk about the technology for those urban farmers and urban agriculture is definitely, I think, one that we need to have more often. Yeah, it's definitely something we don't cover a ton, but, you know, I I think there's going to be a need for it as we continue to see, you know, especially during COVID right now, I think the trend for people to move out of big areas and big cities and maybe into more acreage or rural type of areas, they're going to have a different way of doing things. So uh, definitely going to have to start catering a little more to those audiences, I am sure. Of course, but we are always catering to our audience and having awesome interviews. And you can go back on our website at agnewsdaily.com to hear them. And you can always follow along with us on social media at agnewsdaily. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.